So I'm kind of mentally preparing myself for that. Our first game is December 1st. Um, yeah, it is November 12th. So we've got a lot of work to do in here in just a couple short weeks. But um, one of the things I did not do in my welcome letter to the parents is I didn't say, hey, look forward to coaching basketball this year. I'll see you December 1st. Like, right, because that would be weird. If I just said, all right, well, the game, that's, that's when we're going to get together. That's where we're going to play. I mean, because... That's where it's determined whether or not we win or lose, right? I mean, that, that's why you play the game. That's the only reason to play is to see who wins and who loses. It's not about participating and learning the game or fundamental. I'm just kidding. It is about all those things, and I'm looking forward to teaching them a love for the game as, as well. But we are going to try to win. And so in my welcome letter, when I, when I sent, it, sent that out there, I wasn't focused on the game or what's coming up. I said, here's the practice schedule for the next couple weeks. Now, if I was Allen Iverson... Real basketball fans will get that reference. You know, we talking about practice? Not the game, not the game, not the game. Practice. Yes, we are talking about practice. Because even though it's the game where we determine who wins or loses, we know that it's, leading, it's what we do leading up to the game that kind of determines what that outcome could possibly be. Now, I'm not going to say that we're going to win. <laughs> I know we're not going to win every game, every game that we play, but we're definitely going to prepare for that opportunity. Uh, preparation meeting opportunity, right? That, that's what we're looking for to have happen. And so all of us would say, oh, yeah, it would be crazy to just show up the games and never practice. However, I, I'm just going to say in general, I'm not, obviously nobody here does this, but I, I think there are a lot of people who read the letter of Revelation from John kind of in that way. Uh, maybe we just kind of avoid it because, of, hey, there's this big thing that's going to happen in, in the end, and it's going to be crazy, and there's going to be a wild, stu- wild stuff. And so I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure what to do with that, so I'm going to kind of leave it over there. And we've been talking about it over the last few weeks, so hopefully you feel a little bit comfortable, more comfortable as you've been reading through uh, the letter as we've gone. And then other people just get so obsessed with just that end part that that's just all they focus on. It's just all of those things and trying to you know, do math and break out a calendar and like try to guess people and use numbers and all of these kinds of things to figure out a bunch of detail and just get really nervous and anxious and kind of treat people really weirdly uh, when they talk to them about that. There's a lot of fear involved. And kind of like we've talked about, when that's our conclusion when we read through this letter, then we've read it wrong. If we don't come away with hope and encouragement, then we've, mis- we've, misunderst- we've misunderstood. Um, there's going to be a lot of crazy things that take place. There's going to be this, you know, great final battle, and there's dragons and beasts and harlots, oh my. But a little bit of a spoiler alert, we already know the outcome. Because in the end, God wins. And so the, the whole point of the letter is that because that is the case, we get to hold on to hope. And in, in fact, the final battle, there, <laughs> there isn't really one. I know there's a lot of, you just wait till we get into chapter 17 through 20 this morning. There, there, there really is, actually isn't any kind of battle at all. But we'll get to that text in a couple minutes. So we're going to be th- reading through, uh, not the whole thing, but Revelation 17 through 20. Um, and as we look at that text today, I just want to give us a reminder of how we should be thinking about the events of 17 through 20 by looking and thinking about what Scripture has to say about what is to come, Okay. Because even though we know the outcome of the end, we still haven't gotten there yet. So if that's the case, well, why hasn't God just, like, kind of fast-forwarded the timeline and gotten us there already? 
Like, why do we have to wait? Why do we have to still deal with the brokenness of the world? You know, why do we have to still, still deal with consequences of sin and death? Why is that a thing that we still have to, have to fight through um, and deal with on, on a daily basis? Well, Peter tells us the answer. In 2 Peter chapter 3, he writes this, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. There's a different timeline that God calls us to be a part of with him. Listen, I, I get what it's like to live our life and things not happen in the sequence of events that we would like it to, or it's not happening nearly as quick, or maybe we would just wish that it would slow down a little bit so we can enjoy the season that, that we're in. But God invites us to a, a very different, a divine perspective in how we view these things. And as we read through Revelation, that's what he's giving us. Peter continues to go on to say, and he says, because we know that there is an end to all things coming, what kind of people ought you to be? You should read this entire chapter, by the way. It's fantastic and gives us a great perspective for how we read Revelation. What kind of people ought we to be? We should live holy and godly lives. In fact, we should be concerned with being at peace with God and to be found spotless and blameless when that day comes. And so Peter tells us, hey, even though we know that God wins here in the end, it's what we do between now and then that matters. There's a particular approach and mindset that it takes to win, to to be a winner, and, and to know even what a win looks like. And so as John is writing this encouragement, this hope to these Christians Our fellow Christians that lived a long time before us in a much different context than we do now, much more oppressed and persecuted, uh, the way that we live now has a lot to do with how we experience the win then, and especially on which side we find ourselves. I mean, you you know this, right? You go into an opponent and you think, oh, we're just going to easily roll over them. Like, there's no way they could possibly beat us. You go in cocky, and what happens? Sometimes, Sometimes you get punched in the mouth, metaphorically speaking, and you lose when you thought you were going to win. It has a lot to do with some of the expectations of what a win looks like in this life. Or sometimes we don't even bother showing up because we think, oh, what's the point? It's just kind of a waste of time. i got other things to do. Well, what happens when you don't show up to the game? You forfeit. The other team wins automatically. And so our, the way that we approach the way that we approach this, the way that we live our lives, the way that we think about and having the end in mind in our lives matters. If you want to have a worthwhile eschatology, eschatology just, just means theology of the end, right? Uh, being the kind of person God calls us to be with the end in mind is what it takes. Not, not a bunch of details, not being an expert on the letter of Revelation and having all the things, all the calendars mapped out and all the people throughout history. That's not what matters. It's about being the kind of person God calls us to be with the end in mind. This is what the enemy wants to distract us from. The enemy wants us to be worried about all the things, being fearful. It's much better for us to be occupied with the minutia, for example, for the enemy of how something is going to happen versus participating in the type of life Jesus resurrected for us to be able to partner with and live with him. It matters how we prepare for the end of all things, and it matters how uh, we prepare for God making everything new and all wrongs righted, because we're called to both live with the hope and joy and peace of that knowledge, despite being so often distracted by the appearance of the enemy winning, 
and to share it with those who don't yet have the same hope we do with the end in mind. There's a reason that every generation of Christian has believed that the final battle, the final conflict, the end of all things will be in their lifetime. Like some, some, of you can, some of you can relate to that. You think, man, I think in our generation, like we are nearing, the, you see this, what's happening on, the, on a global scale, you see the things that are going on, wars, rumors of wars. There's a specific thing that Jesus said about that, but I'll let you uh, look that up later. Um, and we, and we, we think about those things, we get concerned about those things, and we think, man, surely Jesus is coming back now. Every generation of Christian has believed that, and there's a reason why that's the case. It's because that's how we're supposed to approach life. With, with the end of mind, with the understanding that Jesus is coming again soon, because that's the approach and anticipation we are meant to have as we look forward to Jesus coming. Second Peter chapter 3 says, bear in mind, uh, verse 15, as you keep uh, reading down through, through that chapter, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. We are meant to be looking forward to Jesus' uh, second coming, to have that anticipation, but also to have that urgency for living the way Jesus has called us to so others can be brought into the same hope, peace, and joy that we share as we look forward to his coming again. Um, so, with all this said, let's jump into Revelation chapter 17 and let's get our heads wrapped around what the text has to say about how the enemy is defeated and how we prepare and live knowing that we are already victorious. Last week, we introduced the unholy trinity and, and the competing message the enemy utilizes to pull us away from God. We talked about how there's a dragon, there's a beast, and a harlot, oh my, um, representing the Satan, the empire, and the adulterous woman is representing the city, which is chapter 17 is all about this and has a nickname called Babylon, Babylon the Great. If you want to understand why this is the nickname, look up Babylon in the Old Testament. Um, we, we just don't have time to go through all of, all of the things that exist there, but Babylon is talked about uh, readily. And this adulterous woman, uh, which we're going to read about in Revelation chapter 17 here in just a second, is representative of the city the city, the seat of power from which the empire rules. Uh, another way that we could describe this is this is the center from which all of our, our you know, worldly hopes and dreams are, are put toward. Like in our country, uh, for example, when we think about things getting done and things that impact our society and our economics and our global politics and all of that kind of stuff, we have one city in mind, don't we? It's a little further north from us by a couple hours, uh, unless you're actually driving on 95 and it's going to take you 15, you know, to, to get there from, from here because of all the traffic. And, and uh, so we have this imagery of, like, this is, this is where things, this is where all of the focus of the kingdoms of this world, all of the power, uh, the seat of authority, the wealth, <laughs> the greed, you know, all of those things flow through this focal point and impact the rest, uh, the rest of the empire. Okay, so we have this picture of the city that we're about to read uh, a description of in Romans chapter 17. Another way that we could describe this really is false teaching. This is, this is what we get caught up in when we look to the city to provide the things that Jesus says the kingdom of God is meant to in our lives. Uh, the provision that God has for us, the way that he blesses us, the way that he takes care of us, the way that he provides for our needs. A lot of times we get caught up in the false teaching that, well, we need to look to the city and all the things that are happening there because that's the thing that really has the most impact on our lives. Or another way that we could describe this is idol worship. Um, you know, that's not, 
typically uh, as easy for us to discern, I think, just because we don't have temples sitting around of specific places, you know, of, of idols, of objects, you know, that we would go uh, and worship, um, uh, but maybe uh, a little bit more relatable way of putting this is just societal norms. Um, maybe that, I don't know if that sounds, sounds strange or not, but I think we get so comfortable and used to just how things work in our culture, in our society, that we just kind of assume, well, this is, this is how it's supposed to be. I mean, you're just you're you're supposed to you're supposed to work this much, and you're supposed to spend this much, and you're supposed to live in this particular way. You're supposed to achieve these certain things in, in your life. This is how you're supposed to interact with the people. This is how you're supposed to go about things. This is how much time you should spend on your phone. This is how much time you know you, you should uh, spend on entertainment. This is you know it's just what what you do. And yet, so often. Um, the, the normal things that we get caught up in, the things that everybody else is doing, it doesn't produce the type of hope and joy and peace that God means for us to experience within his kingdom. It might be normal for the kingdoms of this world, but it's certainly not when we get into the text and see how Jesus calls us to live. In Revelation chapter 17, John writes this description, and I just want you to think about the context of the city, false teaching, idol worship, or just maybe how we're more used to thinking about it, just what's normal in society, and how abnormal it looks with a divine perspective. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery, Babylon the Great the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. And when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. I think one of the reasons that John finds himself astonished is not only because of how, you know, just wild that imagery is, but man, is that the way that we typically think of, of, of just how most people live? You know, it's just not like, they're really attractive you know, aspects of that. I mean, this, man, look, that, that's, a, that's great clothes, you know, and you've got precious stones and all of these kinds of things. We get so attracted and distracted as a result um, by the ways that people normally live, and we just kind of enter into those things instead of living the upside-down way of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Um, that, that maybe for John, it was just kind of a culture shock. Man, this is how bad this really is. This continues on. There's an explanation of the angel. You can keep reading through the chapter if you want. That doesn't really provide a whole lot of clarity for us. Uh, plenty of people will spend time uh, debating about, well, you know, what kings is this really about? Or what empire? Or what's the timeline? Uh, whether or not John is just being shown something unique to the Roman Empire, or if this is about symbolism and imagery that provides a divine perspective on what always happens with empire and city and the kingdoms of this world. But this is the least important way of reading this passage. Uh, because by the time we get to the end of the chapter, we get a clear answer in what's to come for this Babylon, this representative of the practical ways of living that miss the mark for who we're created to be. So Revelation 17, verse 14, 
They, the kingdoms of this world, will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of, this, of the earth. These are the same types of kingdoms and rulers and cities and societies and cultures that entice the Israelites to ask for a system of government, a king over them from God, so that they could be more like the world around them to find comfort and prosperity in the centralization and focus of power. And God warns them, he says, you have a king, you're going to be miserable. It's not going to lead you, it's not going to provide you with what you think it's going to. And yet we get caught up in that so often. There will be a steep price to pay, God tells them, if they continue on with this approach. But of course, we always see ourselves as the exception to the rule. The kingdoms of this world are not altruistic. It's not to say that there haven't been good rulers along the way. There have been. Um, we could point to kings, even just in the history of Israel, who did turn the people back to God, and that, that was great. But the problem was is the ones before had turned them away. We could look along the history of humanity and have respect and admiration for rulers and political systems who have done some good in the world, absolutely. However, eventually all systems of this world are broken and eventually fail. And when it does happen, what was once held up as a shining beacon of power and wealth and a symbol of prosperity and the good life will destroy itself from within, leaving the people who trusted in it empty and broken. It is the nature of broken systems not only to decay but to also cause destruction. This is, again, this is just what it looks like when the brokenness of this world um, is, is allowed to thrive and to prosper. And at some point, God is going to bring an end to those things. And this is not bad news for us because our trust is not in a kingdom of this world. And even though Babylon may chew God's people up and spit them out, her day of reckoning is coming. And for an oppressed and persecuted people that John is writing to, these are words of hope and encouragement. Revelation chapter 18 describes all this. We're not going to read that this morning. Um, I encourage you to check that out. Uh, some suggest that we could read into this chapter a description of the city of Pompeii. Uh, maybe you've heard of that historically. Uh, Mount Vesuvius erupted, and basically the entire city is destroyed in like an hour. Um, this happened in 79, uh, AD 79. And uh, there was even, this is interesting, fascinating stuff. You can look this up later if you want to. You can Google it. Um, but uh, there was a, a Roman oracle that suggested that this destruction happened as a result of divine punishment for the Roman Empire destroying Jerusalem in AD 70. Um, it's just kind of fascinating stuff. As you read through the chapter, it almost kind of reads like it could be an eyewitness account of, of how people are mourning the destruction of the city because, oh, this was the marketplace. This is where we got rich. This is where we could find luxury goods. This is where the merchants brought their ships. Like, this is where we sold uh, linens and cloth and gold and silver and where, you know, uh, commerce happened and all the wonderful things that we could enjoy, you know, the comforts of this world, the exotic foods, you know, the, there was a great restaurant there. You know, whatever, whatever, the, thing, whatever the thing was, you know, there's, there's the description of the world looking at this and thinking, oh, man, the centerpiece of everything that's amazing about who we are as a culture and a society, it's been destroyed and it's just gone. 
and they're just left, left feeling like they have nothing. But that's not how we feel when that happens, because our trust is in a different kingdom. And so the message for us is twofold. As we see the fall of Babylon, do not be seduced by the false teaching and empty promises of satisfaction for the world. It will leave you with nothing. And two, when oppressed and persecuted for the way of Jesus, hold on to hope because he is coming to make things right. As we move to Revelation chapter 19, we see more of a divine perspective and a celebration that evil has been dealt with. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, John sees in heaven uh, standing open, and there before him was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. A couple things to take away from here because this is, this is an image of Jesus. This is who John is describing. We've talked about how there's going to be three images of Jesus in Revelation. Jesus as high priest, which was way at the beginning. Jesus as a lamb who was slain, which has been throughout the text. And now finally, Jesus shows up as a conquering king with a tattoo, by the way. And that final battle, his robe was already dipped in blood when he shows up. Like, that's not a result of, of the battle because Jesus has already shed the blood that needed to be shed. It was his own, and he did that on the cross. And he resurrected again as a conquering king. And the sword coming out of his mouth is the word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword. And he did that on behalf of all sinners and all who are enemies of God. In fact, as you keep reading through the ch chapter, there is no battle as Jesus shows up with his army because the beast uh, is summarily dispatched, joining Babylon in destruction. Nothing, none of the lies or temptations or promises from the world can withstand the truth of God's word as Jesus wields it. And so by the time we get to this point in the text in Revelation chapter 19, two of the holy, unholy trinity are gone. They've been dealt with, and only the dragon, the Satan, is left. And so we're given a third image of how God is going to deal with these arrogant enemies whose sole purpose is to lead people away from the righteousness of God. They've rejected these things because they've desired power for themselves. Now, the beginning of Revelation chapter 20 gets a lot of attention because of its mention of a thousand years. I just want to remind you that we read a text at the beginning from 2 Peter chapter 3 that uh, gave us a perspective on a thousand years uh, from God's perspective. So I'm just going to leave that there. And sometimes I think we get so much attention because we forget that this is apocalyptic literature. It's intentionally metaphorical. It's symbolism and imagery used to reveal or convey the movement of God and perspective, divine perspective on earthly matters. That's apocalyptic literature. There's a lot of eschatology centered around the idea of the millennium or the millennial reign of Christ. And there are two main views. One is this is going to happen in the future. And Jesus is going to come to earth and reign literally for a thousand years in a kingdom here on this earth. The second main view is that Jesus is already victorious and he is reigning now. So those are kind of the two choices that people take. If it happens in the future, um, you know, Jesus, I guess, comes and becomes some sort of divine dictator over the entire earth. 
um, and forces his reign and rule on everyone, and yet still somehow develops a ton of enemies that the dragon gathers together for a final battle with him as you continue to read Revelation chapter 20. And that's one possibility. That we could read the, there's so many different ways to read the text and, and read into that. Um, and so that's a way that we could read it. The other is that Jesus' death and resurrection actually did win the victory over sin and death. The enemy is dangerous but ultimately powerless to control any outcome because God has assured the victory and completed it. And this is a different way for us to think right now a different type of divine perspective that I believe God calls us into as we anticipate Jesus' second coming again. You read through Revelation 20, it was like, how does this, you know, reign of the martyrs work with Jesus? And it seems like he's setting up a system of government because that's just the way that we think. You know, surely it's going to be an earthly kingdom, even though Jesus says in John chapter 18, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. Um, you could read the end of Hebrews chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, verse 1, uh, being surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. I think maybe we've seen something similar to this described before. But as far as the encouragement of, God, of John providing his audience is concerned, when Jesus returns, it's not for a limited time only. And his kingdom is something far better and greater than a special version of the type of kingdom that the world produces or that we conceive of. John chapter 18, I just mentioned it. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Um, you know, what we're fighting for, how we're, approach, how we're approaching what it looks like to win, what, what, we, what matters for us. Man, Jesus has a different way for us to approach this and think about this. You're a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. And everyone on the side of truth listens to me. We skip to 1 John chapter 5. Here, here's another perspective in how we read this text. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commandments. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Again, we, we come here and we find that this battle isn't really any battle. I mean, this is, this is against the dragon. I mean, this is the Satan. This is the, this is the big one, right? Surely there's something more going on here. Um, but this really isn't a battle at all. It's a way to describe the precursor to what must happen before everything can be made new. Because what's described here is the dragon brings all of God's enemies together. They're ready. They're surrounding God's people. And what happens? Jesus goes, boop. I mean, no, no, you're gone. Like, I'm tossing you out. There, there, is no, there is no fight because there is no power there from evil because of the victory over sin and death Jesus has already won. There is a final judgment, however. Evil must be dealt with. And this could be really scary or really encouraging and has much to do with whether or not your hope has been placed within what happens in this life or the life to come or the perspective you have on what it looks like to, to win in this life. We've dealt with a city, city's gone. Babylon the Great is no more. And we've dealt with a beast, we've dealt with empire. The empire has no power here. We've dealt with the evil one, the accuser, the father of lies, the Satan, done, powerless against God. And now it's time for the final part of evil that has to be dealt with. And God's attention the unholy trinity has been dealt with, but now God's attention turns to you and to me. 
Now it's time for the final death and resurrection. And so by the time we get to Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, here's, here's what we read. And this is, this is what John sees in this sequence of events of what happens at the end of all things. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. We've seen this imagery before at the beginning of the letter. The earth and heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. What does winning look like for you? I think if, if John were here, he would, he would ask, ask this question. What does it look like for us to live and think and be in community with each other in the victory that Jesus has already won? Is it the continual striving for achievement in which satisfaction and contentment always seems just out of reach? Because that's what the world has to offer. That's what the city, that's what the empire, that's what the enemy of God has to offer. Or is it confident assurance of the security and the meaning and purpose God has for you? Because this is what the victory of Jesus already provides for us. This has much to do with how we prepare for the end of all things. Whether or not it happens in our lifetime, that part is not nearly as important as understanding life is short, and we can either come to that time that we do have with trepidation or with the expectation that we will soon be reunited with the one who created us, who deeply loves us, and who is already beginning to make everything new, even on earth as it is in heaven. We are going to be judged by what we do, and I'm going to go ahead and let you know how that's going to go. You're going to be found lacking, and I'm going to be found lacking. I already, already know the conclusion of that judgment. <laughs> like all the deeds that are going to be written, but I hope you guys don't get to read my book. You know, I don't, I don't think we're going like, to want to be exchanging. I don't, I don't, well, I, we'll, see, we'll see how that takes place. However, that second book or that other book that was open, the book of life, um, that's where we'll be judged by what Jesus has done. And that's the one that really matters and how we think about the end. Because the book of life will be filled with those who put Jesus first over the kings of this world. Jesus said, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And so when we think about, like, what, what, does, it look, what does it look like for God to win at the end, um, we express that by how, how we live right now and what we do. Who, who are the type of people, Peter says, or, or the passage that we went, read at the beginning, who ought we to be? Because we know this end is coming, because we know that God is wanting all to come to repentance. For us, it's a question of where do we place our hope first? What do we turn to? How do the kingdoms of this world impact how we think about what's going on around us and how we should treat the people around us, how we, think, we should think about the events that happen to us? Is, is our perspective limited to what's just happening right now to us here in this moment here, or is it, is it filtered with a divine perspective of knowing what, what God has already making happen at the end in which everything is going to be made new. Je Jesus kind of summarized this, this, all of this really simply in Matthew chapter 24. 
He says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. In this gospel, the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. You want a way to kind of understand all of this, what's happening in Revelation, all the crazy symbolism and imagery? I invite you to just check out what Jesus has to say, say about that. And, and read like what, what he spends time on talking about what we should be about, what kind of t- types of people we ought to be in the meantime. And that's sharing the good news with, with the world. Saying, hey, I, there's a lot of opportunity for defeat this side of heaven. Um, but there's a victory that God already invites us into in which this life is just the beginning of a much grander and greater life that is to come with him in all of eternity. I can't wait to talk about heaven next week because that's what we're doing. That's, that's where we're headed. Um, and and that, is, that, is what, um, that is the place that Jesus is already preparing for us. And he won that for us through his death, burial, and resurrection, his victory on the cross. Every week at Velocity, we celebrate that together. Uh, we take communion. Uh, we do that. We have a couple different tables around the room, um, uh, stacked uh, cups with a little bit of bread and a little bit of juice that is a um, reminder. It's a celebration of Jesus' shed, body, uh, shed blood and his broken body uh, for us. And so I'm going to pray for us, and uh, we're going to share in that time of communion together uh, right now this morning. God, we thank you for uh, the divine perspective that you share with us through this, this letter that John writes to Christians who are looking for hope and encouragement in a world that is just so obviously broken. And God, um, we just ask you to, through your Holy Spirit, to continually remind us of what kind of perspective, how we're called to prepare uh, for the victory that you have already won as we uh, look forward to experiencing that with you. God, we, uh, we just ask that you help us to lead with hope and joy and peace in a world that desperately needs those things, um, who are distracted with finding those solutions in, in so many different other areas of, of life that just will not produce contentment. And so, God, we ask you to, to help us to be the type of people that you created us to be, uh, to share that hope and that joy and peace um, with our neighbors. Uh, so that they can look forward to your second coming along with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.